0: Support for this season of Hi-Fi Nation was made possible by the Whiting Foundation Public Engagement Grant in the Humanities, and by Allison O'Holloran, Scott Evoy, and Carrie Figdor, whose patronage has made every season of this show possible.
1: Hi-Fi Nation, Hi-Fi Nation.
0: from Slate. When Sharon Mack was a newspaper reporter in rural Maine in the early 90s, she'd have her police scanner on all day when she was on the beat. She was listening when something caught her attention on a Friday afternoon, just as she was packing up to go home from work.
1: They were calling for an evidence truck. And there was something in their voice. And I said, oh, no, I've got to go find them. I don't know where they are, but I'm going to go find them.
0: Sharon used the scanner to figure out where the evidence truck was headed. And she found it deep in the woods.
1: And they were not happy to see me. It started to rain. What they actually had tripped upon was couch cushions, blankets, pillows covered with blood.
0: Two men had gone missing a week prior, Thanksgiving weekend. Paul Lindsay and Buddy Martin, both were in their early 20s. The police had been on the case for a week, but swore the families to secrecy and kept as much off the scanner as possible, probably to keep nosy reporters away.
1: The next day, the sun was out, and so was a helicopter. And I said, I'm going to follow that helicopter. And I'm trying to drive these back roads that don't go where the helicopter is going. And I managed to find a house that they had not even taped off yet. But there were a dozen cruisers, evidence technicians. And I said, I think I found the scene, whatever it was.
0: The house in the woods belonged to the family of two half-brothers, Henry Lombard and Hubert Hartley. Lombard was the older brother in his early 30s. Hartley was 19. They were friends of the missing men and had invited them to the house in the woods for Thanksgiving weekend.
1: What actually had happened is they had they'd killed them, shot them, put their bodies in plastic bags and put it in the cellar and had Thanksgiving dinner with family. They did not have turkey. For some reason, it's stuck in my head that they had a ham. The family didn't think it odd that there were no cushions on the couches or anything because they had thrown all of that down the cellar. And then at some point after, everybody left. They again went out on a wooded road, which is where I first found the state police. Dumped the cushions, the blankets, anything that had blood on it that was in the house. And then went to a different location, kind of a a swampy scrub location. And they dumped the bodies there. Those guys were arrested very quickly. They were placed in the same cell. And had plenty of opportunity to talk to each other before they were interviewed separately. One of them started to crack. We were never told which one talked about where the bodies were because right off the bat, they started blaming each other. Well, I'll blame you and you'll blame me and then they'll have to let us both go. It actually happened. The Attorney General at the time, Tom Goodwin, made a fatal error and decided to try them separately. Two dead people, nobody gets convicted of.
2: From Slate, this is Hi-Fi Nation, philosophy in story form. This season, crime and punishment. Recording from Vassar College, here's your host, Barry Lamb
0: because the assistant attorney general in Maine prosecuted both brothers separately. Each was able to argue for reasonable doubt that he pulled the trigger. For each trial, it was 50-50 that the defendant pulled the trigger, even though it was 100% that one of them did. So nobody was ever convicted of murder for the Thanksgiving Day slayings in 1990 in Maine. But eventually, One of the brothers was sentenced for those murders. You might be confused. I thought we couldn't try people twice for the same crime in America. How can someone be acquitted of a crime and sentenced to life for it also? The answer is a loophole in American criminal law. When the government fails to prove you're guilty, but they're sure you did it, There are a series of steps they can take to put you in prison for that crime. All they need is the right judge. Henry Lombard and Hubert Hartley managed to pull one over the system, only to step right into the loophole and have the federal government pull it tight. That story, when we come back.
2: Hi Fi Nation will return after these messages.
0: Greetings, Hi Fi Nation listeners. I wanted to let you know that the last episode of this season will be delayed by one week because I'm working on a live event that you're all invited to. Protesting Police and Policing Protests is a panel discussion on Zoom that I'll be hosting on June 17th, starting at 6 p.m. Eastern. It's free. All you have to do is register to get the Zoom link over email. The panel will feature Professor Echo Yanka of Cordoza Law, Dr. Michelle Moody Adams of Columbia, Dr. Brandon Del Pozo, former chief of police of Burlington, Vermont, and Dr. Jason Brennan, philosopher at Georgetown University. We'll be talking about the ethics of violent responses to police injustice, the use of police violence, the criminal law of police violence, and the history of nonviolence in Black American protest movements. The event is co-sponsored by HiFi Nation, the Politics, Philosophy, and Economic Society, and the Mark Sanders Foundation. Just go to hifination.com to register, and I'll see you back here in two weeks for the final episode of this season. So we're talking about Henry Lombard and Hubert Hartley. Describe them.
1: Very different. They had different dads, same mom. Henry was in and out of trouble all his teenage years. He was familiar with the police in the town I lived in. Mostly petty vandalism, except for that one time he ran down the road with an axe. He was never known for anything violent. He just was a troublemaker. He was thin. He had a habit of when he laughed, he rubbed his hands together like this. Hubert was much younger, an attractive young man, little round face, looked very much like a young boy.
0: And then there was one other person in that house.
1: Hubert's girlfriend. She was pregnant at the time and had a very young child with her at the time. She was sitting on the stairs to the upstairs And she heard the shooting, and she heard their conversation before the shooting.
0: Hubert's girlfriend, whose name was Tammy, was the only third-party witness to the murders. The toddler was too young to testify. Hubert Hartley's trial came first. Tammy's testimony made the key difference in both trials. Hubert
1: and Henry had gone out supposedly hunting that morning while everyone else was asleep. Tammy said she was sitting on the stairs to the second story of this little house. She was pregnant, early pregnant then, but she had her little toddler, about a year old, sitting on her lap. And she heard them come in. Now you and I would have gone down the stairs, but for some reason she stayed on the stairs and listened to their conversation. And this story never wavered in both, both trials. She said that Henry challenged Hubert and said, if you don't do it, I'm going to. And there were shots, two shots. And Henry said to Hubert, I can't believe you did that. Then she came down the stairs. And they told her to go back up.
0: She didn't hear anything from the victims?
1: No, they were asleep. I have to tell you, that was a very odd sight when she is very calmly on the witness stand, very pregnant, in this little polka dot dress with a bow, almost as if she was recanting how they cooked dinner that night.
0: It was very, very odd. Why did they kill the two guys?
1: No one knows. A motive was never even hinted at in the trials. It was never even hinted at after the trials.
0: What was the state's story that they wanted to sell to the jurors? What was the state arguing in Hubert's trial?
1: It was that Henry and Hubert came in from hunting and that Henry had been challenging Hubert the whole way to do this, to prove himself as a man. No one, not attorneys, not prosecutors, not witnesses, no one said there was any bad blood between the two visitors and the two brothers. That was their theory, is that he was just trying to look like a big guy for his brother.
0: The prosecutor in the case waffled. He argued earlier in the trial that Hubert was part of the planning of the murders, but that Henry pulled the trigger. But after Tammy's testimony and the accusations by Henry that Hubert pulled the trigger... The prosecutor changed the argument and claimed Hubert was the murderer. That was enough to manufacture reasonable doubt as to Hubert's fault in the murder, and he was acquitted.
1: The first trial came as not a huge surprise to a lot of people because they still had Henry. They were banking on, And uh, because Henry was a harder convicted felon. He'd had some brushes with the law and served time before. And Hubert had squeaky clean reputation. And I mean, if you just looked at them, Hubert was somebody you would have at your dinner table. Henry was a little bit scarier.
0: Now tell me about the second trial. What was the most fascinating testimony from the second trial?
1: There wasn't any. It was really a carbon copy of the first one. It was, I mean, you could have scripted it. It was, um, everybody got up there and said the exact same things.
0: Except for Tammy. Tammy gave the same testimony, except switched the names.
1: In Henry's trial, it was Hubert that said to Henry, I can't believe you did that.
0: Oh, I I thought her story was consistent across the two.
1: The story was consistent, but who she heard say, I can't believe you did that was completely the
0: opposite. Wait, wait, and the prosecution didn't take her to task for the inconsistency? You would have thought there would have been a perjury charge there.
1: Whoa, were people furious when Henry got off. The victims' families were horrified, horrified, because they said, two other boys are dead, somebody killed them.
0: Unbeknownst to either men, though, the federal government was standing by in case there was an acquittal. As much as the state of Maine had botched the trials, Henry Lombard had unknowingly committed what would eventually be a fatal error in the cover-up. He testified in both trials that he secured a 22 caliber hunting rifle that he and Hubert took hunting the morning of the murder. All sides agreed that the rifle was the murder weapon. This admission on the record opened Henry up to federal gun possession charges because he had been convicted of a felony in the past. It also opened up Hubert to charges of aiding and abetting in that very crime. They weren't murder charges, but they were charges that could keep both men in custody and subject them to another trial on different charges they could not escape. Hubert, who didn't have a record, pled guilty at the end of the federal trial.
1: Hubert walked out of that courtroom and walked out of everybody's lives. You never saw him, you never heard from him, haven't heard from him to this day.
0: Henry Lombard was found guilty of illegal gun possession. It was at that point that he stepped into the loophole.
3: The jury convicts, and then when it comes to sentencing, The judge has this wide range to consider a lot of factors.
0: That's federal judge Frederick Block of the Eastern District of New York.
3: And you can consider even acquitted conduct.
0: The idea is that sentencing judge can sentence someone for a crime that they were not convicted of.
3: Most people can't believe that. Yeah. And most lawyers can't believe that a judge can consider uncharged conduct, acquitted conduct, but you can, regardless of what the uh, verdict might be.
0: At Henry Lombard's sentencing, the prosecutors brought back in the facts of the murders to give the judge reason to sentence Lombard to the highest possible sentence you could get for federal weapons charges. They argued that the weapon Henry Lombard is now guilty of possessing illegally was a weapon he used in a murder. That's the loophole. When the prosecution waits until the sentencing phase, after a trial is officially over, They can bring back in all matters of things they no longer need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And they do it to convince the judge of a particular sentence. Those facts can include anything. Crimes the convicted was acquitted of. Crimes the government could never charge them for. Anything. All they need to do is convince the judge that the facts are true. And it's up to the judge to determine their relevance and their appropriateness to a sentence. Henry Lombard was sentenced to life in prison on gun possession charges. But he was sentenced to life for using that gun in a murder. A murder which the prosecution never needed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt he committed. And do you think this is correct? Do you have any feelings about it morally? Do you think it should be a tool and the tool belt for the judge?
3: I think it's okay if there are enough safeguards that are placed in the path of to protect against indiscriminate, you know, or irrational decision making. I think that's great.
0: This is state senator and former federal prosecutor Todd Kaminsky, whose perspective on the practice comes from his many years as a prosecutor Set on locking away the bad guys. You know, when a judge is sentencing one, they're supposed to consider the totality of everything in that person's life, history, whatever. You could do everything from murder on to other things. I think a judge needs to consider that. I don't think you just make it up. There has to be some evidentiary standard and uh, that you could bring in in a later case, but I think it's absolutely relevant. I mean, a judge not supposed to know that if somebody two months before they committed the crime in, in front of him or her, also committed a heinous act. Even if it was acquitted like, in like, state court? Earlier? Yeah, look, I think if a, a prosecutor thinks there's reason to believe it's true, and there's evidence that support of that that could withstand the scrutiny of a hearing, you should absolutely bring it in. You should
3: bring it all in. It's wildly unjust.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, why do you think that? This is philosopher Matthew Noah Smith of Northeastern University, who thinks and writes a lot about justice in many areas of political philosophy. After I found out about this practice, I called up some friends of mine to get their knee-jerk reactions, and then to talk through with them why we felt so bothered by the practice.
3: It's wildly unjust because it seems suspicious, to say the least, to change the procedure so dramatically with respect to the same questions, simply because uh, you've reached a different phase in a trial. It eliminates all of the procedures that are supposed to ensure that the criminal justice system realizes certain values that really matter to us.
0: Listen to my conversation with Matthew Noah Smith and my philosopher friend Mark Schroeder of USC in the Slate Bonus episode for this week. We talk about procedural and substantive justice. You can get it by becoming a Slate Plus member by going to slate.com slash plus. Here's how you should think about the reasoning that led to Henry Lombard's life sentence. In the trial, the state needed to show beyond a reasonable doubt that Henry Lombard was the trigger person in the murders. For the sake of argument, we'll say that that means that a reasonable person has to be 95% sure that Lombard did it. But given the way the state botched the case, the jurors were closer to 50-50 that he pulled the trigger. Now it's sentencing time in the federal case, and it's admitted as fact that Henry was in possession of the gun. At this point, the prosecution only needs to establish to the judge that it's likelier that Henry pulled the trigger than Hubert. The standard has been lowered from 95% to 51% to admit as fact that Henry pulled the trigger. And that's far easier to prove. If you know ahead of time that it's 50-50, whether one of two people pulled the trigger, anything could sway you just a little over the top, as it did the federal judge.
1: I interviewed Henry several times after the trials. He called me at home. I think he had started to unravel a bit. He just seemed a bit lost in a stupefied state, like, how the hell did I get here? How did this happen?
0: Did he give you a version of the story?
1: No. I asked, he would change the subject. Like if I asked him a specific question about a specific something, who moved the bodies? Or or did you talk about it in the woods before you went to the house? That kind of thing. He would mumble and he would say his brother's name. He would just say Hubert, Hubert.
0: Henry Lombard lost every appeal his lawyers filed. They argued that sentencing him for acquitted conduct violated his due process rights. There are three different constitutional amendments, the Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth Amendments, that this practice could be argued to violate. The right to a jury trial. The right against double jeopardy. The right against excessive punishment for crimes. None of them worked.
1: Towards the end, he just really seemed confused and fractured. His stepmother called me very, 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 I was gonna say late at night, but it was early in the morning and um, and told me that, uh, that Henry had hung himself with the cord from his laundry bag. I felt really sad that, that that's what it had come to.
0: So, so not as a reporter, but as like a main resident, do you think justice was done in that?
1: Oh, absolutely not. You know, two guys are dead. Never made it home to their own house for Thanksgiving. And two guys walked away from that.
0: The fact that Henry ended up getting a life sentence, did that make it better in your mind or worse?
1: I don't think it made a lot of difference. Yeah, okay, yeah, he went to jail. But he didn't go to jail for killing someone.
2: We'll return to the rest of Hi Fi Nation after these messages. The Partially Examined Life
0: Philosophy podcast has been downloaded over 34 million times and offers 11 years of spirited discussions of classic and modern texts from Heraclitus to Judith Butler, including recent episodes on possible worlds, the social construction of race and gender and Albert Camus' novel, The Plague. The Partially Examined Life Network also includes Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, applying philosophical chops to TV, film, music, and gaming. Check out all the Partially Examined Life Network podcasts at partiallyexaminedlife.com.
3: I'm Jerry Leonard, uh, professor of law at Boston University School of Law.
0: There have been many claims made to the Supreme Court that being sentenced for conduct that the government has not convicted you of is a violation of the constitutional rights to a trial by jury and against double jeopardy.
3: But they have been shot down unceremoniously by the Supreme Court. As long as there is a conviction in place you can be punished for that offense. If there's some other offense of which you've been acquitted, the facts underlying that offense might be appropriate context for the offense of which you've been convicted.
0: The Supreme Court has said that there's no double jeopardy because you're not placed on trial again for the crime to which you've been acquitted. You remain legally not guilty of that crime. Facts admitted during sentencing are there to figure out whether there were aggravating or mitigating factors to the crime you were convicted of committing. Here's an example. Two different people sell a gram of cocaine to someone else. That's the offense. They both plead guilty without any trial or testimony and come before the judge for sentencing. That judge is presented with facts by the lawyers that one of these people is a recreational user who offered some cocaine to a friend at a club, and the friend gave them a dollar bill in return as a joke. The other person is a regular dealer near the local high school, and the buyer was underage.
3: There are very different offenders violating the very same statute, and to punish them identically seems to me morally wrong, completely out of touch with all of our traditions.
0: The tradition is one where every sentence should be individualized. The sentence should depend on the person and person's circumstances when committing the crime. Were there factors that make someone's crime a little more excusable, a little more justifiable, or in contrast, even more heinous? And in order to individualize, you're going to need to know the person and the circumstances. This is called contextualizing the circumstances of a crime.
3: But you have to allow a certain amount of fact-finding at sentencing.
0: But just what kind of facts it's okay to allow, and what kinds of facts are not okay to allow, is not clear in the law, and it's not even clear in our moral reactions. In 1994, a college student in Fayetteville, North Carolina, named Anthony Barber, began working as a driver for a drug dealer. The drug dealer stopped paying Barber for the rides, and eventually Barber and his friend, David Hodge, bought a shotgun, drove with the dealer out, in the car, and shot him in the back of the head. Because Barber had no priors. And for various reasons, known only to the prosecutor, both Barber and Hodge pled guilty to second-degree murder.
3: First-degree murder requires a premeditated killing. That is, you've decided ahead of time that you mean to kill someone. If you kill somebody unjustifiably, but you haven't premeditated it, then what you're guilty of is most likely second-degree murder.
0: But Barber admitted in a post-plea statement that he did premeditate the murder. He planned it out with his friend days in advance. The judge had right in front of him an admission of premeditation. Premeditated murder was uncharged conduct, conduct the state couldn't charge Barber with because of the plea bargain. But an admission of premeditation really does seem to contextualize the murder that Barber did commit. If you thought your friend killed someone in the heat of the moment, and you find out later he had planned it for days, it does make it worse. That was the reasoning of the judge who sentenced Barber to prison time consistent with first-degree murder. That's a sentence Jerry Leonard does not believe is just.
3: I would argue that a trial judge cannot take premeditation into account as a contextualizer of second-degree murder because it doesn't contextualize second-degree murder. It creates a whole new offense that we already have on the books called first-degree murder. So if the conviction is second-degree murder, the punishment has to be for second-degree murder.
0: Using second-degree murder as an example, Leonard argues that a judge should not be allowed to contextualize a crime by using facts that make the crime into another crime. For Leonard, using facts that turn a crime into another crime is not contextualizing. It's double-charging. This would mean that most uses of acquitted and uncharged conduct would be illegitimate in sentencing. Because by definition, you're using different chargeable crimes to contextualize this person's crime. The test makes Henry Lombard's sentence an unjust one. Because murdering someone with an illegal gun is not a particularly egregious form of illegal gun possession. It's a way of redefining gun possession as murder. And murder is on the books as a different crime. Leonard's test sounds reasonable, but it has some rather paradoxical implications. It seems to depend on accidents of what we decide to criminalize and what we don't. There's a case where a judge sentenced the man to 30 years for a second-degree murder because the judge found it particularly heinous that the man stabbed the victim 16 times. Only first-degree murderers get time like that. Leonard's test would make this sentence okay, because there's no unique crime of homicide by 16 stabbings. So 16 stabbings can be an aggravating factor in sentencing. I think that's okay. But is it okay just because there happened to be no law criminalizing homicides by 16 stabbings? Legislatures have been pretty creative in recent years We have different crimes for different amounts of cocaine, different crimes for powder versus crack cocaine, crimes concerning whether you can use butter or margarine, as we talked about in our first episode. It's weird to think that if lawmakers suddenly criminalize the number of stabbings in a murder, then all of a sudden it'll be like premeditation, something you can't admit as an aggravating factor in sentencing. Why isn't it just... Whatever is aggravating is aggravating, and whatever is mitigating is mitigating. Let the judges use all of it, like we do now, or let them use none of it. Is a solution, all right, we'll just cut it out completely. Cut out the use of unconvicted conduct. In fact, let's not contextualize it at all. We make almost complete uniformity across crimes and sentences. Is that a solution? And if so, what is to be said against that?
3: For most people, there are such meaningful differences between, between particular offenders who, who fit the same offense, but whose culpability or whose ongoing dangerousness seems so different that it just seems deeply wrong to punish them in the same way. Having what's sometimes referred to as a flat time system. You do this offense, you get that punishment. End of story. No discretion. Not something we've ever really done in our system.
0: Jerry, as you're describing this, it occurs to me, why can't problems like this be settled at the statute phase versus the sentencing phase? Let me explain my question here. I'm asking Leonard why instead of letting judges make the discretionary decision about what's aggravating and mitigating, you let the criminal law do that you make a different crime every time you think someone deserves a different sentence.
3: Well, in principle they can. You can have very very fine-grained statutes. You've stolen $1,000, you get this much. Between 2000 and 5000 you get this much. Between 5000 and 10000 you get this much, uh, right?
0: It gets really pedantic very quickly.
3: Uh, yeah. I mean, federal guidelines operate on a table that has 43 offense levels, right? And there are point systems. And they still leave an out for the judges to exercise discretion in cases where the, all of that work in the guidelines doesn't adequately cover the facts uh, of the case.
0: there's no way to make it fine-grained enough.
3: There's no way to mechanize it completely, at least not in a way that makes us all feel good about the outcome.
0: Ultimately, there's no way around the problem. We have a strong moral commitment that individual circumstances can aggravate or mitigate responsibility for a crime. Yet we don't know ahead of time what facts are aggravating And what are mitigating? When we try to figure it out, we end up with absurdly ornate laws that never capture the full range we originally wanted. And when we fail, we end up with the need for judges' discretion anyway. And finally, there's the public demand for substantive justice. The demand that the actual bad guys get put away and punished for the crimes they actually did. From the other side... When I looked at a lot of these cases, you know, I found cases where the state wasn't able to prove that some serial killer was a serial killer, so they got him on credit card charges or something like that. I found a lot of those, you know, and I'm trying to look at it not from a, you know, a professor's vantage point about procedures of justice and constitutionality, but, but there are some pretty bad people who most likely did something, and judges have a tool that they actually don't use all the time, but they use when they're convinced that somebody's going to escape justice if they don't use it. That way of looking at it makes it sound like this is there not as a loophole for the state to do extra violence on people who don't deserve it, but to catch the people that can easily slip through the system unless judges actually did use the practice. And so do you have a compelling argument against me if I came to it looking at it from that perspective?
3: What you're suggesting is, all right, this doesn't get done that often, but when you need to catch the serial killer and all you got is credit card fraud, then that's what you do. And we know that there are going to be, shall we say, adaptations of the system around the edges, but you're suggesting it's rare. And the thing is, we have no idea if it's rare. So for one thing, how do we know that that serial killer actually is a serial killer? Haven't been convicted of it, but somebody, the police, prosecutor, judge, they're convinced of it, but they aren't able to convict the person. So are we really okay with that? I mean, there might be the rare case where you and I would both go, dodged a bullet there, got the serial killer on credit card charges. But in fact, the way the system works is that 95% of convictions are had through guilty pleas and not through trials. And when you have a guilty plea, there's very little transparency about what's going on. So the kind of punishment for unconvicted conduct that we're talking about is uh, potentially very, very common. We don't know because we don't get to look behind guilty pleas. What we do know is that the capacity to punish for unconvicted conduct is one of the tools that gives prosecutors leverage in pushing people to plead guilty to things that they may or may not have done and to accept facts that may or may not be be accurate.
0: Jerry Leonard's position reminds me of something I've learned throughout this series. A particular criminal procedure, in this case, the use of judicial discretion to sentence for unconvicted conduct, isn't just or unjust, in a vacuum. It isn't just or unjust on the basis of whether it got the right or wrong result in particular cases. These procedures occur in the context of an entire system of procedures that skew prosecution, policing, sentencing, and punishment in a particular direction. That direction, recently, is easier convictions and harsher punishments. It's an interesting development in this country in particular. Four out of the ten original amendments to the U.S. Constitution were about criminal justice. And they weren't tips on how prosecutors and judges can make sure they got the right sentences for the bad guys. They were written to protect defendants from the power of the state in criminal justice prosecutions. But clever people find clever loopholes. And it seems like the state found a doozy. But that might change. At the Supreme Court, the two Trump-appointed justices, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, have on-the-record opinions questioning the constitutionality of using acquitted and uncharged conduct. They would be joining Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Clarence Thomas who have already written in support of banning the practice. That makes four out of nine. And in the Senate, Dick Durbin and Chuck Grassley introduced a bill in the fall of 2019 to ban the use of acquitted conduct in federal sentencing, though it leaves untouched, uncharged conduct. That bill hasn't gone anywhere. They've been kind of busy in the Senate.
2: Hi-Fi Nation is written, produced, and edited by Barry Lamb, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vassar College. Editorial Director for Slate Podcasts is Gabriel Roth. Senior Managing Producer for Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. Operations Manager for Slate Podcasts is Asha Saluja. Editor for Slate Plus is me, Chow Tu. Executive
0: Producer for Slate Podcasts is Alicia Montgomery.
2: Production assistance this season provided by Noah mendoza Goop. Visit HiFiNation.org for complete show notes, soundtrack, and reading list for every episode. That's hiphi Follow HiFi Nation on Facebook and Twitter, and at the website for updates on stories and ideas.
0: You can hear my complete conversation with Matthew Noah Smith and my friend Mark Schroeder of USC in the Slate Plus bonus episode this week. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires
3: your music?